Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Pass. In Psalm 30, it initially seems like David is chastising himself, but really, he's preaching God's perpetual goodness. First, how's your week? Uh, I've just come from visiting family, uh, and it's always good to see family no matter what the circumstances. When you get to see family, you get to see how everyone has changed and hopefully grown. What we have to be careful not to fall into is a look at how far we've come mentality. It's true, there are accomplishments in our lives, but whose accomplishments are they? If we're a child of the king, they're not really our accomplishments at all, right? And I have to be careful here. Uh, God has allowed me to be really good at my job, and you may be one of those people as well. It's easy when we excel with our God-given talents to lose focus of the fact that he's equipped us for the work that we do, that every new opportunity comes with an opportunity to give him glory. Yet I take credit. I don't point my successes to his enablement. I claim the advantage of great mentors and time in my field, but all too little do I claim grace. Because it's only in his grace that I have any of what I have. And I find myself sometimes in the state that God warns Israel against in Deuteronomy 8. God's given Israel blessing. He's given them promises. And he's already begun to deliver on them, but he warns them. You're going to prosper in the promised land. You're going to flourish in the promised land. You're going to get old and fat and happy and complacent. In your abundance, be careful. You don't forget the one who has provided that abundance. You know, all week I've been talking about how I don't know if I'm ready or if I was going to be ready for this psalm this week. That's exactly why we're going to jump right into it. So here we go. Psalm 30, beginning in verse 1. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up and hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit, shall the dust praise thee? 
Shall it declare thy truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. Thou hast turned for me mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. Now David writes this psalm on the heels of a, a bad decision in his kingship. Uh, if, if you'll remember, and if you don't, I need you to go and look this up when we're done because it's a really great story and it, it lends a lot of uh, color and context to this. And we're going to go through a lot of it so that you have that understanding. But in First Chronicles 20, David celebrates a season of war in which Israel was repeatedly victorious. The Israelite army had invaded the kingdom of the Ammonites and had laid waste their capital city. And the army of Israel didn't stop there. After that, they went into the land of the Philistines and toppled warlords that were sons and brother to Goliath. And they were successful over and over again in that land and slew a man. And I thought it was funny that the Bible pointed this out that had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And he was a mighty man and he was a unique man. But when he defied Israel, God gave him into the hand of David's nephew. The time of war for the year had been profitable. Great strides had been made in securing the land that God had given them. And David was high on victory, and chapter 20 ends with the statement that all of these fell by the hand of David and the hand of his servants. And then in chapter 21 and verse 1, the Bible says, Satan came and tempted David. Satan, the passage says, stood up against Israel. He set his eyes on Israel and he was ready to deal a blow to Israel. And he was going to do it from within. He tempted David to number Israel take a head count, a census. And David succumbed and gave in to the temptation. This victor, this man, the apple of God's eye, gives in to temptation once again in his life. Now, before only God had ever asked that this task be performed, but David was feeling pretty confident on the victories that he had come off of, and he wanted to know how many people there were in his great kingdom. His kingdom. So the census was taken, and God was displeased. Regardless of whether it was lawful for David to number the people, the Lord saw the intent of David's heart. David's goal was to see how far the reach of his kingdom went, not to count those that served the one and only true God. And David realizes his mistake a little too late. 
In his disobedience, he placed himself outside of God's will and the nation of Israel by extension. So God gives him three choices. You can have three years of famine. And in the famine, David and the country would be at the mercy of the surrounding nations to help provide for them, dependent upon the mercy of other men. Or God said you can have three months of being destroyed by opposing forces. And again, in this situation, David and the nation would have to rely or count on the mercy of men. Finally, God says you can have three days of a disease that would ravage Israel. And here, David realized he would be able to rely solely on the mercies of God. So David chooses the latter. In his failure, he still had the wisdom to know that God's mercy was more perfect than the mercy any man could ever grant. So the Bible says a pestilence, a, a harsh, deadly disease, comes upon Israel and 70,000 men lose their lives to the disease. And the Lord, he, the Lord was ready to continue just allowing this disease to destroy Israel. But in a moment of clarity, in the midst of mourning, David looks up from where he and the elders had gathered and covered themselves in ashes and sackcloth, which at that time was a sign of repentance and mourning, and sees in a vision before him the angel whose sword was the disease spreading through the nation. And he begs God to take his life and his family's life instead of continuing to allow this disease to spread through Israel. In this moment, David realized that the nation was not there for him. It was not his nation. He was a steward of the nation. God had placed the nation in his care. David realized that he, in fact, was there for the nation, that he needed to lead sacrificially, in humility, casting his pride aside and throwing himself on God's mercy. And right there on a farm in the middle of a threshing floor where they separated out the grain from the chaff, David builds an altar to God and praises him because God granted reprieve. And this is where we find David's heart in Psalm 30. This is where his praise is lifted up. I will lift up your name, O Lord, because you have lifted me up. You gave me a choice to be at the mercy of my enemy or at your mercy. And when I selected your mercy, you made sure my enemies would not be the ones to rejoice over my defeat, just as you promised. And when we're faced with a choice in our lives, a choice that we've driven ourselves to, where we have to choose the lesser of two evil consequences to a bad decision, do we ever think to stop and thank God that he's allowed us 
a choice. That he's given us the option to return to him in his grace, despite knowing that we still have to bear the consequences. We make bad decisions. We're no better than David. We see things going right in our lives and we think that this is our life. Look at where we've gotten in our hard work. And as I said before, it's so easy for me to fall into this trap. Look how far I've come. Look at the position I've worked myself into. And maybe for you, it hits different. Maybe for you, you say, look at my relationship. Look how good it's going. I think I've got it all figured out at this point. Or look at this project I finally finished. I knew I could do it, and I did. We all look at the varying levels of accomplishment that hit all of us. Well, I knew I could be involved in this ministry at church and knock it out of the park. I'm careful. Are we really going to start numbering all of the ways we've been a blessing to ourselves? How much we've been a blessing to other people? How blessed God is to be able to use us? When we get to this mentality, we step right outside of God's will. The exact place we're boasting that we're not. How our pride loves to sneak up on us. It's how Satan got Eve. It's how Satan got David. And it's how he gets us. Pride is something he's very familiar with. And he spent a millennia perfecting how he can play to our pride. And when we bear the consequence of our pride, of giving in to that temptation, do we start in on the, oh, woe is me. Why is God doing this to me? Or as David, do we recognize that we were in the wrong and thank God for his redemption, even in our consequences? David says he cried unto the Lord and he was healed. In his admittance that he was the problem, that his giving into the temptation is what had caused the calamity that was affecting the people God had entrusted him with, God brought healing. God brought restoration. David knew God was merciful, so he threw himself on those mercies. When he did, God, always good to his promises, healed him and restored him. He could have let the consequences of his actions take him to the grave. He could have let him go down into the depths of death and despair, but because David came to God with an attitude of true repentance, recognizing his own fault and taking the responsibility for it, and willing to sacrifice his own well-being for the good of others, oh, how the Lord was good to him in his forgiveness. And do we cry to the Lord when we're dealing with the consequences of our sin? Or do we believe that somehow, if we deal with the consequences without asking him for help, maybe he won't know about the sin? Like, we can hide it from him if we take care of it ourselves? 
You know, as kids, did you ever throw a ball or toy around knowing that you weren't supposed to do it in the house and everything was good? You and your brother or sister were having a blast. I mean, what did mom and dad know? You can throw the ball around. What were they so worried about? And then the horror, as the ball in slow motion hits that knickknack or light or thing you know you did not want to break, just as your parents predicted. As it fell to the ground, the immediate call from the other room was, Hey, what's going on in there? Are y'all breaking something? And your answer unanimously was, No. So you'd sneak into the kitchen and you'd grab some glue or tape from the junk drawer and you'd spend the next hour silently trying to make it whole again on your own. And it looked horrible. And you couldn't make it whole again. There was no way. And finally, you had to take this little recreated abomination of a knickknack to your mom and just tell her the whole story. But if you would have just told her in the first place, she would have just thrown the thing away, been very disappointed, and you would have just had to deal with the consequences of your action. In my own life, I could see the same pattern years ago. I've given my testimony about this before, but I had messed up my home life. My family was just a mess, and it was my fault. There's no doubt. But I thought, well, so I had to make it right. And hey, look, it was working. I was making it right. I was keeping it together. And it's like I was waving my hand down here and I was, I was, I'm fixing it, God. Look. But I wasn't. And when I realized that all of my hard work trying to mitigate the consequences of my actions was doing nothing, I finally had to hit my knees and cry out to God for help to fix my situation. Well, the consequences were still there, but with God's help, he was able to heal and keep me from utterly destroying the things that I held so dear to me. He really did just bring my soul up from the grave. And because God did this for David, he encourages all of Israel to sing with him. Sing because he's mighty. Sing because he's just. Sing because of his holiness. If he weren't holy, if he weren't above all things, if he weren't set apart in a way that only our God could be, perfect outside of being touched by emotions and feelings and vengeance the way that we are, well, we wouldn't sing to him. But because he is, sing his praise. His anger endures for but a moment, but in his favor is life. Those listeners that are parents, you'll understand this. How quick are we to be angry when a child does something that we know, that they know, will hurt them or cause negative consequences for them? But then how quick we are to go and snatch them up to comfort and help in their healing as soon as that flash of anger passes and we realize that they're hurt. Well, God's anger is real. 
But God's anger doesn't last toward those of us that know him as our father. And when we think, so often when our pastor speaks of righteous anger, he uses the case where the religious rulers were baiting Jesus and arguing with him about healing people on the Sabbath. Uh, The account in Mark tells us that he looked round about on them with anger. And then he told the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand, and he healed him right then and there. A pastor points out that when God gets angry, he heals people. And there's no doubt that God was angry with David, but he also healed him, as our passage attests. Because his favor is life. And how do we gain his favor? Repentance. Acknowledging that we've failed and seeking reconciliation with him. And when we truly understand the depth of his love. You know, the last few Sundays, it's come up in our Sunday school class, uh, the tears that will be wiped away in heaven. At the judgment seat of Christ, our works not done for his glory uh, they'll be burned away and as wood, hay, and stubble, and everything that remains will be gold, silver, and precious stones. These are the things that we did for his glory. And you know, I've always been taught that the tears would be from realizing what we didn't do for him. But the more I learn about our God and our Savior, the more I realize that our tears most likely will be from the realization that so much of our lives we didn't give him glory and that he still loves us. Not tears because of our failures, but tears because of his unconditional love. Those things bear no weight on his love. No, I... I, I don't believe that those tears will be tears of regret. They'll be tears of wonder that we've served such a loving God and that now we get to just spend eternity with him. This is the weeping. We weep that we're loved by such a God as this. And it's in the weeping, the awesome realization that he loves us despite all the times we fail him, that we act according to what he knows is our sin nature. We can never disappoint God. How can we disappoint someone who knows what we'll do and what decisions we make before we make it, and he loves us still? Lay the weeping about the magnitude of his love and grace for us, let the weeping about the magnitude of his love and grace for us cease and have the joy of the morning as we're welcomed by that same grace and love back into his presence. Be careful not to let his blessings in our life disillusion us into believing that we've done these things that would have brought us gain. One of the things I've been struggling in my life, as I said before, is managing the abundance God has blessed our family with. 
in my pride, I've seen it as an as an opportunity to get things, uh, to acquire things, and I've come to the realization that I have to stop that mentality. I have to give glory to Him. I have to give the credit where it's due and make right my negligence in giving Him the glory, because I'm a steward. Am I being a good steward? of what he's blessing me with? Or like David, am I building myself a foundation saying, hey, it's going to work out. I'm not making a hole. I'm digging down to lay the foundation. And in doing so, am I putting myself and my family in a position where God may need to allow the consequences of my bad decisions cause it to feel like I've buried myself under this mountain that I want to call a foundation to where I'm in a position that I feel like God has hid his face from me. You know, so often we scream, God, where are you? When we find ourselves thousands of miles outside of his will, he didn't put us there. And it's easy to be in his will in certain portions of our lives, Uh, church, relationship, family, job, finances. But one of those things is going to be an issue for someone. And maybe for you, you find it easy to be in his will and everything, but when you're at your job, you still time, you don't have the greatest work ethic. Well, God has something better for me. What if the job you have is the better he has for you to see how you handle those adverse conditions to see if he can reward you with a a greater job. And maybe you're really dedicated to your job and your church. You've got no issues giving your finances to God, but your family and relationships are struggling because you're trying to maintain those in your own power. And we feel like we need to cry out, well, Lord, what kind of testimony will it be for you if this aspect of my life fails? but yet we haven't given that aspect of our life to him. Will we try to argue like David in verses 8 and 9 and say, well, is the dust going to praise you if I fail in this portion of my walk with you? Well, first off, yes, the dust will praise him if we don't. The Bible says the rocks will cry out if we don't praise him. But second, he would much rather use us. Instead of bargaining, David wound up crying for mercy. Lord, I messed up. I did exactly what you told me not to do. I didn't give you glory in every aspect of my life. I've given over pieces of me to you, but not all of me. Lord, I need your help. You know, this is becoming one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's not that we need to be re-forgiven for our sins. And it's not that God doesn't know our sins. He wants to know that 
we know them. We might be better off to read the verse this way. If we acknowledge our sins to God, and acknowledging their despicableness and that they're an offense to him, even the smallest one, he's faithful to deliver on his promise that he's already forgiving them, forgiven them according to his just nature of forgiving them, because he says that he forgives all of them at the moment of our salvation. And then to, he helps us in the power of the Holy Spirit to perform in us the act of progressive sanctification as he purges and cuts away those sins we acknowledge to him. But this is the key. We have to acknowledge them. We have to know and admit to ourselves that the sin we commit is an affront to our God, that they're egregious, that we would deserve eternal damnation if not for his forgiveness and the blood of Christ in our lives. And it's in the recognition that like David, we turn from being sorrowful that we've offended a holy God and we begin to dance. Because from our knees of acknowledgement, God raises us to our feet in the knowledge that he has long forgiven us for those sins and that we've now restored our fellowship, repaired our relationship by coming to him. And as his love and the richness of his grace washes over our hearts, you feel that right there in your feet? That's the Holy Spirit moving with the joy in your heart, the rest of your body to join in as your lips worship the one who's freed you from sin. So must your feet, your shoulders. Come on up off your knees and dance unto him the dance of the forgiven. He's made you whole. You're complete in him. When we begin to recognize how dirty our sin is, we'll better appreciate his love, his grace, and his mercy. It's this realization that will cause us to take off the trappings of living a defeated life. Remove the sackcloth of defeat and despair from your life. You are redeemed. You're a child of the King. And I look, and as we enter this week that we celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday here in the States, what a perfect ending David has for us at the end of this psalm. Sing praise to the Lord our God. Don't be silent this week. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. David says that we have no glory in ourselves. All of our glory is the glory of God himself. In the final verse of this passage, we see David's found a place for his pride. And that's that it has no place in his life at all. The only glory he wanted was the glory he could give to the Father. 
As we prepare our hearts this week, we should remember to fill every day with thanks to the God who loved us first and who loved us best. Giving him glory, thanks, and praise is just practice for eternity. And while David, at this point, is already engaged in praising and thanking God as he has been for millennia now, it'll only seem like a moment when we evaluate in eternity to do the same with him. So as you sit around the dinner table this week, don't forget, forget to give thanks to the one who's given us so much and required so little. God bless. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for walking with me a while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week and we'll walk just a little further? If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.